This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobber, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration. The purpose of my company is to help business software companies rethink what can be to become remarkable again. The goal that I have in this podcast is to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. So my strong belief is that we can think big, and therefore we should. And doing so will help to create a better world for all of us. This podcast is all about that. The guest on my podcast this week is Daniel Fagella, founder and CEO of Emerge AI Research. When I was getting out of grad school at UPenn, it, it became pretty obvious that a lot of these corollaries with neuroscience and with cognitive science around how we learn were being experimented with and explored in machines. By the time I got out, I, I sort of realized that should this trend continue, this is going to be some really wacky, wild future we're headed into in 20 years if AI continues to be able to do what it could do in vision. So I decided I should get dedicated to this stuff and understand its impact for humanity in the long term. Everybody, I think, usually expects me to be the hype man of AI, you know, talk about how awesome and transformative things are. And certainly in the long haul, I think that we're in for a pretty wild ride. I think that probably in the next 40 years, we'll see post-human intelligence potentially. Right now, it's a lot of struggle, to be honest with you. So most AI, you know, quote unquote, kind of AI innovation efforts within the enterprise are really at a pilot level, at a proof of concept level. And if we look at a space like banking or insurance, it's safe to say that most of these POCs fail rather than win. There are very serious, major challenges. This is Daniel, called upon by organizations like the World Bank, United Nations, Interpol, and global pharmaceutical and banking companies, Emerge CEO Daniel Fagella helps business and government leaders navigate the competitive landscape of AI capabilities and build strategies that win. Being an active reader of his weekly update on the world of AI, I got inspired by Daniel's down-to-earth and challenger view on the topic. And this is why I invited him to my podcast. We explore the challenges in adoption of AI in the market and what is the deeper cause behind that. We also address the approach that business leaders need to follow and the VC mindset they need to embrace in order to avoid the challenges. By listening to this interview, you will learn three things. Firstly, why in order to create sustainable competitive advantage, data dominance is the foundation to strive for. Secondly, that succeeding in AI requires you to step out of the sandbox and stress test your application with your feet in the mud overcoming the real-world data challenges. And thirdly, why solving a big problem with your solution is not enough. Getting a deep understanding of the objectives and objections that move the needle in the hearts of the people that buy your solution is required as well. So Daniel, thank you very much for making, a, making your time available today to be on my podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. 
So before we dive into the nitty gritty of artificial intelligence and intelligence augmentation, because that's really what I want to talk about with you today. Yeah. It's always interesting to, for my audience to understand a little bit about what drives you. Uh, you know, what are your passions? And for example, how did you end up in this business? Yeah. I don't know if it's a little bit too heavy for you, but essentially I went to graduate school for cognitive science. So I went to University of Pennsylvania to study essentially skill acquisition and skill development. So in human beings, this is kind of neuroscience, it's cognitive science. And my focus was applying that to combat sports. So weird little fun fact, I, I paid for undergrad and graduate school by training fighters. So I don't know if you've ever watched like MMA, like the UFC or something like that. Not that I'm aware of now. Yeah, kickboxing, a lot of you... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Landian folks yeah, yeah. are sort of into that. So it's like kickboxing, except you can tackle people and then punch them in the face when they're on the ground. So, so I ran a, a martial arts academy to pay for undergrad and graduate school and wanted to study skill acquisition. And by the time I was getting out of grad school at UPenn, it, it became pretty obvious that a lot of these corollaries with neuroscience and with cognitive science around how we learn were being experimented with and explored in machines. So there were people tapping me on the shoulder in the business school there on like, hey, you know all that neuro stuff? You know, they're starting to do that in computer science. And this is back in 2011. So computer vision and NLP were just being tinkered with in some little fun ways, you know, in various UPenn labs. And by the time I got out, I, I sort of realized that should this trend continue, this is going to be some really wacky, wild future we're headed into in 20 years if AI continues to be able to do what it could do in vision. So I decided I should get dedicated to this stuff and understand its impact for humanity in the long term. So 2011, starting in cognitive science, I realized I got the wrong degree and started looking into AI and started this business. So Okay, interesting. And your, your business is fully focused on the research side, right? Yeah, so we we do high level market research for let's say global pharmaceutical firms or retail banks or organizations like the World Bank, for example, have commissioned us for research yeah. on essentially the business and financial impact of AI. So, what is this going to do to our workflows? What is this going to do to our markets? And what should we do about it? That's that's kind of what we get paid to do. Good. Well, that's uh, I think very very useful because I mean, like I said, I've been. I've been in the business software space for, for a very long time, 27 plus years. And I think I've never seen the industries change so fast now that there are a number of waves coming together, like, we have, of course, driven by the clouds, but it's the, it's the, the compute power, the, the memory techniques, the data that's far more available than ever before. And of course, then the technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning that, yep. that make use of that. So, so what I typically find very fascinating is to see you know, how various vendors take this opportunity and start to create products that are completely different from what we used to, used to know. So what do you see at the moment in, in these markets? Yeah, I mean, very high-level question, I guess. You're just talking about AI in the enterprise writ large. How is it making its way in? What's going on there? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, so, I mean, the high-level, everybody, I think, usually expects me to be the hype man of AI, you know, talk about how awesome and transformative things are. And certainly, in the long haul, I think that we're in for a pretty wild ride. I think that probably in the next 40 years, we'll see post-human intelligence, potentially, and that's a whole different podcast. But, you know, right now, it's a lot of struggle, to be honest with you. So, most AI, you know, quote-unquote, kind of AI innovation efforts within the enterprise are really at a pilot level, at a proof of concept level. And if we look at a space like banking or insurance, it's safe to say that most of these POCs fail rather than win. And that's for a couple reasons. Now, I'm letting you know, I am not a long-term like pessimist, right? I'm not sitting here telling you like, well, ignore all this AI stuff. 
What I am saying is that there are very serious major challenges to adopting AI in the enterprise. And I'll go over three really big ones for your audience. So the, the reason that this is kind of slow as hell if you're sitting in an enterprise that's existed for, let's say, more than 50 years, more than 60 years. So slow as hell because of a few things. One, the use cases are are often quite new and novel. So these startups come out of a lab somewhere. Maybe they have some industry experience. They have hopes about how the data within these big businesses are organized. They have hopes that with a certain volume of that data, they can produce a certain result. They have hopes that the people that are doing IT in this way will change over and be able to do AI in this other way within these big companies. And some of those hopes, as it turns out, don't work. And so they learn hard lessons. Some of them pivot and they pivot to the point where they find a win and they can grow. Some of them pivot enough times where it just doesn't doesn't work out altogether. So novelty of use case is one big deal here. A second big deal here is the fact that AI is so different than IT. So what we're used to, you said you've been in software for as many years as I've been alive. You know, basically like in IT, as far as I know, I've never worked in IT in an enterprise. I've always run my own companies, but you know, looking from the outside here, people think of IT as kind of plugging things in. You know, we, we need a problem to be solved. When X happens, we need Y to happen and we need software to sort of build that. We'll have a little interface and, you know, we need to plug in IT. That's kind of maybe a decent analogy. With AI, we're not doing IT. We're not plugging things in. We're doing science. In other words, we are tinkering with different data, different values, different features that we're trying to train these algorithms on, experimenting potentially with different algorithms. And we have to stay on top of those in real time. We have to see if the algorithms are swaying and shifting in ways that we think are inaccurate. And and we need to to hands-on experiment. Now, experimentation implies a few things. One, we don't know if it's going to work. That's a big deal. Number two, it takes quite a while sometimes to be able to get ourselves to a level where we're beating the previous performance of of these systems. So that culture shift of, hey, boss, can I have an amount of time that I can't really tell you, an amount of money that I can't really tell you, to produce a result that's never going to give you 100% of what you want, but could give you like better than what humans are doing now, but I have no promises. The answer to that question, even for people who want to be AI optimists, is often no. And so the vendor landscape is having a tough time evolving in that ecosystem. And then lastly, data is just very, very hard to access. None of these companies 50 years ago were storing data so that they could harmonize that data and train algorithms. They stored the data for some compliance reasons or some record-keeping reasons, and it's massively challenging to actually enable it within an enterprise. So what I see is a lot of struggle. And luckily, I do see some companies and some vendors sort of finding pockets of ROI, pockets of promise that will lead to more venture funding, will lead to more maturity of the vendor solutions, and and will will bloom in the years ahead. But that is not most companies right now. Now, I can see that. I mean, I've seen an enormous explosion of AI-type companies. And I mean, one website after the other saying we we have them all listed, and it's it's just amazing what, what is there. And maybe that's also driven by the hype. And if you don't have AI on your product or portfolio list, you know, your, your valuation starts to, uh, starts to decline. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. So there's different reasons why this is happening. And I agree with you. There's, also, there's a lot of, yeah, I say that uh, there's a lot more beauty in things up than things sometimes really, really are. But it's interesting to, to hear from you that you see a number of pockets that are really working. Now, my, my particular focus with the podcast. When I started, the whole thing was, I see two things. There's the automation side, which is about 
typically automating people out of a job. And I would say that is the augmentation side, intelligence augmentation, where it's really about using technology to make people better. Do you have any examples of, of areas where you see things start to get together and really working out in, in that particular area? Yeah, you're talking about in augmentation specifically? Yeah. Yeah, and again, I think I have a very hard time drawing a firm line between those two. And I'm happy to give you examples, but it's very rare that, that we would see in its entirety an example of automation with no augmentation or an example of augmentation with no chance of, of automation. So we could talk about some workflows that involve a little bit of both sure. here. So, you know, we could think about, let's say, in the banking space, we could look at compliance. So yeah. compliance is a nice landing place for AI and banking. Now, we've recently completed a massive AI and banking industry landscape report covering literally every known use case in like the top 50 banks in the world, a deep dive in all the top seven US banks. Compliance is a big deal here in terms of where AI is hitting the ground running. Nobody writes press releases about it because it's not sexy, but as it turns out where the money's going, where the traction is, compliance is big. Why? Okay. The why is because it tends to fit pretty well with what AI is good at. If I tell you, let's use AI for wealth management, let's suggest the right like stock picks for our customers and then send them emails. Like, okay, is that valuable? Is that not valuable? Does that affect our customer lifetime value? Those things are questionable. In compliance, we can ask like, okay, is there something wrong with this payment or transfer that should flag it as potential risk in terms of, you know, compliance? Anomaly detection, just in terms of neural networks, I mean, that's the name of the game. That's the low-hanging fruit. We're not extrapolating a new use case of AI. We're literally just doing what AI is good at in the first place. And so this is an example where we can get some IT teams that are already trying to leverage things like RPA. So they already have some experience with attempts at automation. And we can now give them new tools where they can learn to some degree, often with the vendor's help, they can learn how to now train and leverage a data-based tool that can sort of drink in this information, flag and tag things in a different way, in a more adaptive way, hopefully a more accurate way. And then these folks have a slightly different workflow, but hopefully with the ability to have a much better sort of ratio of, of false positives and, and false negatives to the point where, where they're, they're saving the company money and you know, driving, driving value for the firm writ large. In those cases, however, there are certainly ambitions by banks to make their compliance department smaller, right? Compliance is this big imposition from the government. The government says, oh, you need to follow all these rules. And I'm not saying that that's bad. Like, I think it's logical, but it's, it's a tumor, right? I mean, that, that's what it is. It, it just eats blood, it eats nutrients, and it doesn't drive value. All it does is make sure you get to keep your banking license. And I'm not saying that, like, I think government is bad. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is, we need to reduce that cost at any cost, basically. And so, you know, there's focus on helping these folks augment their skills, learning new tool sets, being able to drive more accuracy. But there's also potentially efforts with getting rid of some of these big teams in India that are manually combing through stuff that are costing us an extra X million every friggin' year. So it's, it's both happening at the same time. Almost any business function is going to have the same. So let me know what you want to dive into there. Well, I mean, that's, I see these examples as well. And I mean, there's... And it's not that all the AI will at the end like replace people. I think no. another good thing about this as well, you're typically giving an example here about the services industry. The services industry is, of course, very people-heavy. Yep. And if you also look at what, what the demand for people is these days and the fight to get those people out of the market, 
there's just a shortage of it. So I, th I think at the end, it's good that these tools come around so that you actually free up capacity to kind of deal with that scale and that growth that you're looking for anyway. That's um, the hope, yeah, that's the hope. That's good, and this is the free up part. But yeah, like I said, it's, uh, it's typically the areas where, I, where I've seen a great number of examples already on my podcast that are then taking, okay, now you have that free time. Now you don't have to do all of that, that admin anymore and all, this, all the stuff that actually computers are far better at doing. So what are you going to do with that? And how can you kind of leverage that to take it to the next level? I mean, one of the examples I found, for example, in the space of compliance, that's, that's also triggering something with me. And that's maybe more about some of, some of the ignorance that's living in the market. And let me give you that example. I was talking to Mindbridge from, from Montreal. Okay. I spoke to the CTO. And one of the things he said from the research that was done by an authority that is kind of looking after fraud and these type of, type of anomalies, they say... I think 7% of the, of the money that we find with, with the current tools, well, we only find 7%. So that means that 93% of the fraud and anomalies is not even found. And people yeah. Think, yeah. think that they're doing a good job already. So they're missing out on 93%. That's, I think, where these tools are going to be making a big leap. But that also tells something about the fact that if people and if companies don't realize wh where the issue really is, they're thinking they're doing a good job, that's also going to stop them from even asking the question or even looking at those types of technologies. Do you see that as well? Yeah. So you're, you're saying that if people don't realize how much additional improvement is available, exactly. they won't be motivated to do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the challenge there, so I think that's ubiquitously the case with human beings. I think that that ties to our hedonic treadmill for our just general psychological well-being, anything that can rank or rate us and where we stand. I think that 100% you're, you're on point there. I think that we will see the heat. So right now, I, I joke all the time, the majority of the money in AI is made at events. So if you sell $2,000 event tickets, you know that, that's where the actual money is made. These vendor companies are all living off of their VC mommy and daddy. They're, they're, not, they're not generally making money right now like in a legitimate way. So the, the money is actually in, in AI events. When the tides turn and the money is made by the companies providing the technological value, it will be because of the pressure you just said where people don't want to be left behind, but that is not going to happen until we have enough tangible, succinct, concrete examples of that value coming to life. So every startup can take data in a sandbox and can say, we went from 7% to 82%. But you try to move that into AIG, you try to move that into Geico, you try to move that into Wells Fargo, and it's like, good luck, buddy. You know, you'll have two and, a, two and a half years, you're going to be grinding it out, fighting with departments to break up data silos, hiring massive teams to reharmonize huge swaths of data, trying to convince people to overhaul data infrastructure just for your stupid vendor company. And it's like, dude, it's like, this is, you know, every, every vendor's got the big promise, but it's like... The, the actual boots on the ground is really hard. The, the sandbox is easy. The boots on the ground is really hard. Now, when the boots on the ground are marching, right, when, when firms like MindBridge or whoever else is in risk have like just massive swaths of, of banks and insurance firms or whatever who have concrete testimonials about, you know, how relatively easy it was to use these technologies and how much value they're, they're delivering on a regular basis in, in real operational terms, then that pressure you're talking about will actually kick in. Right now, that pressure is just from vendors and event companies talking about how cool AI is. It's not from 
for the most part, it's not from, from reality. So when reality kicks in, I think that that pressure will kick in. Yeah, I agree. It all starts with the problem, of course, and no one will start anything if there's no problem. Yes. It goes back to your earlier debate about can I have money for something that I don't know what the outcome is for? Yeah, that's that's hard. You know, I'm not saying that companies should not invest in AI, right? I'm not sitting here saying that, but I am saying it's a challenge to get these experimentations off the ground. I was listening, I mean, getting these experimentations off the ground, I was listening to your to any call that you did with an investor company, and it was about the point of creating competitive advantage with these type of technologies. Yes. Now, if I think... I mean, you, you just gave an example about compliance, and I don't think that any bank, any insurance company is going to ever make competitive advantage out of that type of... You are right. You stuff. are right. But do you see examples where this is the case and where companies really get that extra push in the back whereby they get ahead of the curve? 100%. So a couple important comments on this. Number one, I just wrote a massive piece on this, on a series that I have called AI Power about a topic called data dominance. Data dominance is sort of the basis of the competitive moat of many of these AI vendor companies and and smart enterprises are beginning to think this way, but it's not nearly as much as, as the vendors and the VCs who all understand it. I'll have that for the show notes or something, but I'll give you the quick download here. So enterprises don't really get this right now for the most part, but startups almost ubiquitously get this, particularly if they're well-funded by legit VCs, because legit VCs all understand this. I I spent like six months interviewing VCs in in Silicon Valley about a year and a half ago and drinking in their thoughts, and this is where a lot of these ideas have come from. So here's the idea. The idea is if you, so this is the cycle, if you can own a specific business use case or kind of you know, consumer, you know, purchase or consumer use cases, some, some sort of process fulfilling some kind of need, right? For a customer, whether it's an individual or a company, if you can fulfill that need in a way that is really, really helpful and useful, then, then you can win more customers. Now, if you win more customers, you win more data. If you're, if you're good about it, you can use that data to make a much better product than your competitors, which can allow you to make more sales, which can allow you to win more customers, which can allow you to win more data, which allows you to improve your product. Let me make a small interruption here. Daniel just illustrated vividly how vendors that leverage data dominance to unlock remarkable value for their customers achieve two things. They create a flywheel for their business, and secondly, defensible differentiation. In the remainder of this interview, you can expect more insights like this from him. But before we go there, if you want to get some fresh guidance on what you can do to move the needle for your customers and create defensible differentiation for your business software on the back of that, just drop me a note at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. And at some point, you end up, so the classic examples of this are your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Googles. It is not possible physically for any, you know, outside of China where you can ban Amazon uh-huh. or, or, or ban whatever you want, <laughs> ban religions, <laughs> you ban whatever you want in China. But, you know, outside of China where you can ban Amazon, you can't have a better general everything store than Amazon. Like it's, it's not physically possible because Amazon gets so much purchase volume that unless you pick a little pocket, like, I don't know, like pet supplies, right? You'll see, you'll see e-commerce companies come up in the game and they'll grow to half a billion dollars or something. And then Amazon will buy them or Walmart will buy them. But you, you, you find success in pockets, but general e-commerce is an, is, it's kind of, it's kind of over. 
Amazon sort of won that game because you wouldn't go anywhere else but Amazon. Their infrastructure makes their prices, allows their prices to be so low. Their recommendations are so good because you've been using them for seven years and they get so many purchases from people like you. They know exactly what products to recommend you. So their product is so good because they get so much data that you can't go anywhere else. You want to use them more and they get more data and they become immovable. And I think that monopoly law is probably going to shift to the United States to take this dynamic into account because it wasn't there when yeah. Rockefeller did his thing and Vanderbilt did his thing. So, yeah. so that's the ball game. Every startup in every sector that, that is sort of very sharp and adamantly using AI is thinking about that exact data dominance game. I could give you a couple smaller examples than Amazon, like new company examples, but let me know what you want to dive into. No, I mean, definitely. I mean, Amazon maybe kind of, there's of course a huge example, but do you see, for example, I mean, one of the industries that always fascinates me is professional services, people-driven, project-oriented. Do you, do you have any examples around companies that use data, in this case, to, to, to deliver a completely different ballgame? Man, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm not, I'm not the biggest... I'm not the, I'm not the super optimist in that the big people-heavy project-based eat what you kill service game. Like I, I respect and like the Accentures of the world. Like I, re- I know those guys, you know, pretty well, like the CTO there has written pieces for us and has been on the show. And, but I, you know, they are, they are the biggest proponents of augmentation. So this dynamic that where a lot of your interest is in augmentation, the most thought leadership you'll ever see on augmentation. Oh, it's never, it's not going to be automation. Everything's going to be cool. Everybody's going to upgrade their skills and make more money and whatever is going to come from McKinsey is going to come from Accenture is going to come from Boston consulting group. And that's because number one, they are really people heavy, scary businesses. And if they, they talk about kind of the stuff that can get automated, I mean, they, they'd scare their own employees to the point where it would be inviable. So they have to, they have to tow the party line, so to speak, because you don't want all your employees to quit. Number two, they're serving businesses that also don't want their employees to quit. So if McKinsey wins business with Wells Fargo by saying, hey, man, all of these rote tasks are going away, you know, Wells Fargo can't in good faith do business based on that value prop, right? Uh So the way that I've heard it explained when I talk to people at HSBC, I talk to people at Citibank, I talk to people at the, the big people in the banking world, is that with the consulting firms, automation is what we call a smile and a nod. In other words, it is an undercurrent of the conversation that everybody acknowledges can't be addressed, but everybody acknowledges is real. I think the the service industry is not for their own moral faults, but kind of complicit in the denial of this stuff. I'm not a naysayer, but I think complete optimism is just gobbledygook and I don't like it. In terms of, so to get back to your question though, in terms of competitive advantage in the service space, ah, man. I think that that's very hard. So, so where, where does data dominance come into play? So let me give you an example of where data dominance comes into play. And then I'll tell you why I think it's exceptionally hard in the service sector. And maybe I can flesh out one or two examples before we wrap up here about where it could fit into the service sector. So I'll give you some coulds, but, but it's, it's primarily not in the service. So a quick, quick preamble. Okay, here we go. So let's talk about other examples. I'm going to pull a random company out of the hat. I could think of 50 of them right now, but let me, let me pull out a company called Inside Sales, okay? Yep. So there's a company called Inside Sales. I, I think they've been unicorn status for a little while now. I respect what they're doing. I like what they're doing. This is a company that does 
It's kind of like a CRM tool, but specifically for sales folks. So essentially giving salespeople a dashboard to sit in front of, what emails to send, what phone calls to make, what time to make these calls, what time to make these connections, what messages to automate. Essentially, how do, you know, I mean, we're using your term here, how to augment their skills to maybe be in a more effective salesperson, okay? Yeah. So here's the theory with inside sales. And, and they are well aware of this. And I've also talked to one of their big investors and their big investor is well aware of this, uh, Polaris Partners. So the, the idea is if, if inside sales can work with, I'm going to give you a random example, 500 enterprise SaaS companies, okay? 500 enterprise SaaS companies. What they can do is they can drink in the patterns of successful selling activity, whether it be email templates, whether it be phone call timing, whether it be follow-up sequences, whether it be product offerings, whether it be physical mailers, they can determine sort of the patterns that that seem to be leading to more success for SaaS sales in the enterprise and potentially make it so that their product is so good that when you sell SaaS in the enterprise, as soon as you buy inside sales, even before training on your unique data, they already will be able to prompt your salespeople to be like a third more productive than they were before, just based on training from past SaaS enterprise um, companies like yours. Now, if their product can be that good, then more SaaS enterprise folks would use them and then they would get more data and they could pull away in the data dominant sense to the point where if you sell SaaS into the enterprise, you couldn't not use inside sales. This is, this yep. is something that they are gunning for. So does that make sense as an example? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yep. So, so this, is, this is an example of data dominance. It's a pocket, right? It's not as big of a market as let's say, you know, all online commerce. I mean, like the Amazon market or, or the Google market, all online search, right? I mean, th these are bigger markets, but, but it's a pocket where data dominance could exist. They could do the same thing for car dealerships. If they work with 2000 car dealerships, you know, and you sign up and you're in the middle of urban Los Angeles, they could say, okay, you sell Toyotas, you're in the middle of a big city in North America, here's going to be the sales best practices, this is going to be what we prompt your, your salespeople with, and you're going to sell more freaking cars the first month you use our software. If that's the case, every auto dealership will have to use inside sales, and they'll be able to gain the monopoly power and the business, the, the kind of game-changing moat of competitive advantage. Now, why is this hard in services? This is hard in services because a lot of the time, if we think about a McKinsey, these are, they're so bespoke. Projects are so bespoke. Okay, we're going to build out a website for you. We're going to do some research on the side. We're going to help yeah. to train your teams a little bit. We're going to bring in kids that just graduated from Yale and are willing to work 80 hours a week and like wear really nice suits. Like we're going to do all that stuff. And unless we have a rote, ongoing, relatively similar use case that we can pound data through, it's very hard to gain data dominance. So with inside sales, we sell to certain companies, they feed us a very particular kind of data about all their sales activity, and we can train on that. Similar use case, similar data, train an algorithm meaningfully. If we were going to bring data dominance into the services sector, we would need to find a pocket of data that we as a services firm can get more of than anyone else. And that if we gather that data in a repeated sense, we'll be able to, to meaningfully gain an advantage over our potential competitors. The places I could maybe see this happening would be in somewhere like, let's say, potentially prospecting, lead scoring, et cetera. We might be able to, as McKinsey, if we can kind of 
that's something we're going to do ongoing. We're always going to be proxying and figuring out who to call, when to call, and, and, and there might be internal processes like that that we could leverage. But in terms of things for servicing our clients, if we continue to do bespoke projects for clients, we don't get to accrue the same data dominance that the software firms do. And that is a cold and real reality. That's right. Yep. So they're, they're so, facing challenges. That's not going to be every use case. It's going to be that useful for, for AI. And well, that said, I mean, I've seen interesting AI concepts that are about not leveraging data that's available digitally, but typically using the data that's actually still in your head. One example of that is unanimous AI, for example, with their swarm technology. That's a different ballgame. It is. Let me see. From the things that you've learned and the things that you've just been talking about, what would be one or two advice to CEOs of companies that are considering use of AI if they're not doing already, but what, what are the one or two questions they should really ask differently or think differently about? Yeah, man, there's a lot of really high level advice. I'll, I'll just go into two, as you had said here. So one of them, one of them would be to, to that I have found. So we do a lot of hands-on work in the C-suite in addition to kind of the research game strategies often going to be a part of the mix. The folks who are most likely in, let's say, the next two years to bring AI to life in a way where it generates value, whether it's just efficiencies and low-hanging fruit or whether it's enabling some kind of a competitive advantage, are going to be C-suites, boardrooms, where people understand two things. One thing is, generally speaking, what are the kinds of problems AI can solve and what are the kinds of capabilities AI can enable? So just broadly speaking, what realistically can AI do? Now, the way to understand that, unfortunately, means, you know, kind of reading up and getting a sense of use cases, getting a sense of where traction exists, getting a sense of what AI is, quote unquote, good at or not good at, but some ballpark understanding of what is reasonable for AI to be able to do in terms of business problems. If we have extreme naivete in that department, we are almost never going to finish a POC in a way that makes anybody happy. So that, that's, that's number one. And a number two would be to get a good sense of the lay of the land applications within their sector. Who's doing what? What has traction? What might be possible? So that we can kind of layer those potential use cases and capabilities on top of our own strategy, on top of our own business. And instead of plucking out whatever's making noise, which often is some stupid chatbot project or something, we can sort of think about aligning legitimate capabilities with legitimate priorities for the company and making more informed decisions that we're willing to put budget behind, we're willing to see as a long-term investment as opposed to a toy. And so a general understanding of what AI is capable of doing, what kinds of problems it can solve, and what kind of use cases we have in our sector generally. Unless we have some rough understanding of those two, the likelihood of POC success is uh, very, very low. So there's, there's step one for you. Step two is to really understand that the core difference between AI and, and IT. IT is plugged in. AI is an experiment. AI implies going out on a limb. It implies risk. It implies enduring the risk that our data and our current algorithms and our current approaches may not be able to enable the capability that we're trying to enable. And so the, the way I've heard this articulated, it was actually one of our research advisors at, at HSBC, who's one of the kind of heads of AI over there. 
had mentioned that he hopes more C-suites will see AI almost in a venture capital sense, so in the enterprise, to see a number of investments in core capabilities and know full well that not all of them are going to come to fruition, but that if they're in line with our priorities, some of them will, and we'll gain skills and traction in ways that will ensure our success in the future. So being able to frame the venture capital analogy in the enterprise is very different to current enterprise thinking, but I think it's a critical shift. And so those would be two points that I would advise. Valuable, and I think that's absolutely correct. Because it's, I mean, since you're not, you don't know where, what is really the end game. You have to start, start working on that. And starting is maybe more important than, th- than than talking about it. Start the process and evolve from there. Yes, and hopefully start on the right foot with some understanding of where you're going. But yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm all about you know, let's get in and let's experiment. But I'm also all about let's understand the real lay of the land before we dive in to say let's do AI for its own sake. So I think once you get to that level of grounding, then I think, yeah, you're right. You're only going to learn by doing and hopefully people can do that more effectively. Exactly. That's good layering. Any advice from a, for technology companies that are building this? I mean, you've seen the things fail. You've seen things succeed. What is a, a, a piece of advice that you could give in terms of uh, like succeeding in this space? Uh, Yeah. So, oh man, there's a lot here too. So maybe 30% of our research work is go-to-market research for either enterprises or venture companies that are looking to break into markets. And so this is an inordinate part of my, you know, an an average week of my life is, is these considerations. In terms of just mistakes to avoid, one of them would be getting a firm understanding of whatever sector you're selling into, whatever space you're selling into, of who the core... St- so two considerations here. We'll talk about stakeholders and we'll talk about data. And if you just check these boxes and think these things through thoroughly, it could be the difference between positioning yourself totally wrong and positioning yourself totally right. We see companies that have raised $40 million have to completely pivot their company and that is not a lot of fun. So stakeholders would be the first thing. So if we know what problem we're solving, we know hypothetically who controls the, you know, who, who's in charge of those processes, we'd want to understand what stakeholders would be involved in a purchase decision. So sometimes we can go straight to the C-suite or straight to the director level person and we can get enough traction to push something through. Often we're going to be dealing with internal IT teams. We might even be dealing with the people who lead the functional teams underneath them, whose workflows are going to change. They're often going to be part of the conversation. Yeah. So if we can get a sense of what are the stakeholder groups that we want to address, we can learn two things. Number one, what are the positive buying motives, the visions they're trying to move closer to? So we we would call these like objectives. So objectives would be things that they're moving towards, like, oh, we really want to get to here. We really want to save this kind of money. We really want to beat our competitors in this way. It's an exciting forward vision. And then what are the objections? This would be kind of like, the the nightmare scenarios we really want to avoid. If we know even two objectives and objections, the top ones for the core, let's say one through three stakeholders who are going to be involved in our sales process, then that can allow us to create collateral, to create homepages, to create digital campaigns, to create speaking engagement topics when we go on stage that always and consistently hammer on the objections and the objection, the objectives and objections that are going to move the needle in, in, the, in the hearts of the people that need to buy from us. And so really distilling those motives is hard work, but it allows us to align everything with moving that needle. So that's number one. Number two would be as much as possible, get a sense for the kind of the, the state of sort of data and IT setup within the firms you're trying to work within. So it, it's, it's very easy to make assumptions 
that insurance companies store claims data this way. Insurance companies process this process this way because one of our founders worked at Geico. One of our founders worked at AIG. But we may not have those things as norms across firms. So trying to get some proxy, if we know the problem we're going to solve, we're probably making assumptions around the accessibility of the data and the IT systems we're going to be integrating with. It would be better to earlier rather than later firmly discern is this replicatable across different IT sectors? Sometimes that's hiring a market research firm. Sometimes it's just doing the secondary and primary research yourself to try to get a hold of these companies, to try to talk to people who used to work there, hire consultants that used to work there, whatever the case may be, and get a firm understanding for across this whole sector, not just this one company that one of our founders worked in, across this whole sector, what the heck does the data look like? What are the challenges to accessing this? What are the IT systems we're going to have to hook into? And what does this mean for the product we're building? We shouldn't be building it off of a single founder's assumptions because we might go to market and have to drastically change the game six months later. So those are the two considerations I would advise. Fair advice. And I uh, concur with this. I've seen that being very big failure areas of companies that I uh, I know myself of. So yeah, that's good advice. So we have to round it off. Where can people go to find out more about Emerge, the research that you do, and say hi to you? Yeah, sure. I mean, folks can find me at, on Twitter, just at Dan Fagella. I'll throw it to you for the show notes or something like that. But our, our main website is just Emerge. That's E-M-E-R-J dot com. So most of our site, luckily, is the, the work we're able to publish for free. So when we do a big project for a pharma company, luckily, we can often spin out 12 really interesting articles from the, the key lessons we've learned. So you can find... No matter what sector you work in, you can find dozens and dozens of articles about where AI is transforming that sector and assessing the vendors in that space. So Emerge.com is a place to check us out. And then otherwise, getting in touch with me, I think Twitter's usually the best place. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Cool. Yeah, glad to be here. Very insightful. I knew you had a down-to-earth opinion on the real world around AI, but you still surprised and inspired me at a range of levels. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. So thanks for that. And for everybody listening today... Thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the pleasure to talk to Daniel Fagella, founder and CEO of Emerge AI Research. The goal of this podcast is to share compelling ideas and showcases to inspire what can be when technology and people blend in the right way. It's my strong belief that too much focus is put on automating people out of a process, in other words, cutting costs, rather than scenarios where the unique strength of people are augmented with technology change the established rules and to deliver a value that was unimaginable before. So with this podcast, I want to make a contribution to change this, to create a broader awareness of what can be, to accelerate the adoption by bringing together you, a tribe of like-minded people and organizations, and lastly, to accelerate the initiatives and solutions that could be created because one idea inspires the other. So if you know about stories that are worth sharing, please send me a message. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas, and that starts with you. If you want to have more information, read my blogs, or obtain information on working with me, just visit me on my website, valueinspiration.com. Thank you for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast or provide me with your feedback. I'll see you shortly in a new episode. That's what 
Ransomware is all about is psychological pressure. Ransomware, when your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise, and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.